Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Greg Strawbridge. He is the pastor of All Saints Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He's authored and edited a number of books, including The Case for Covenant Communion and The Case for Covenantal Infant Baptism. He also runs WordMP3.com. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, glad to be here. Greg, you are a pastor in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and you use the lectionary every week, right? Yeah, we use the Revised Common Lectionary. It's been a great blessing. We've been doing that for almost 10 years and um, had a number of uh, great benefits from it. I've also written on it. I have a lectionary blog post, basically, that kind of goes through it, and I've had ministerial students write on it as well. We're not quite through all the three-year cycle. We took a break from it for the last few months, but we'll get it there one day. I love it. So let's take a look at this week's passages. Our first passage is from the book of Exodus, chapter 14, verses 19 through 31. So here we've got the angel of the Lord. We've got, you know, the the Egyptians in pursuit. We got Moses. We got Israelites. Just before this, a little concerned, right, about their potential non-deliverance, kind of saying to Moses, what the heck, did you bring us all the way out here just to die in the desert? Yes. Yeah, that's amazing because, you know, God had already done a few things to prove his power before this. They're like Janet Jackson. What have you done for me lately? (laughs) Yeah, but the fear of man, the fear of man, the fear of, oh, no, what's going to happen? The inability to trust God is really written throughout this portion of the narrative, isn't it? It's just quite an incredible thing. Yeah, and that's what's interesting too, right? Because our sort of modern conception of freedom, if we're free from certain constraints, we think we're free, right? But, and on and, and one level, even though Israel is more free, right? Because they're, they're even though they're not in, in a completely sort of liberated state, you know, they, they're not a new nation yet. And there's a certain sort of ligaments and things like that socially that haven't connected. You know, they, they even being though out, to the degree they are from Pharaoh's reign, they're still not free. Like, like, like we could be, you know, we could end a relationship that and think, okay, well, I'm free from that now. But the codependent issues, the things that like maybe ruin the relationship, we might still be slaves to them, even though we've changed our relational location or social location, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking of when uh, just earlier in the chapter, they uh, became frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Is it because there were no graves in Egypt? that you have taken us out to die in the wilderness. Now, of course, they always have these great lines, don't they? They have these great sort of sarcastic lines against God and against Moses. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is... Uh, this is uh, it's always interesting to see, too, in, in various Hollywood adaptations, like how, how the how the people who are sort of the grumblers are portrayed. Yeah. Like I remember the, I remember the chief grumbler in the Charlton Heston version, the Cecil he was great, kind of a little Weasley guy. <laughs> yeah. And then as it builds up to the passage, the uh the the faith of Moses. Now this is a good example of a leader. You know, a leader says, 
Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the the Egyptians whom you've seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Verse 14. That's just amazing. And that's the kind of thing that I think about as a, you know, as a leader, as a teacher. It's like, I need to help people get beyond their fears and point them to God and point them to see the salvation of God. And this is the archetypical, you know, foundation of pointing to the deliverance of God, how God delivered them in the face of these enemies, and they did nothing. They walked. That's what they did. That was their battle plan, to walk across a dry uh, seabed after God opened the the doors of water. By the way, uh, the psalm for the day, uh, there are various versions of it, but the one that tracks most closely with this is, uh, I believe, Psalm 114. And this is when Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language. Judah became God's sanctuary, Israel his dominion. That's really striking, first of all, because God would be with them. God would be present with them. But then it, it describes the entire Exodus event in various poetic ways. The sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. Why is it, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? Notice the conflation of the Red Sea and crossing the Jordan as well. Yeah. And, you know, I'm struck like by a couple things. And I guess, you know, as I'm looking at this text, I'm thinking of what I'm reading right now. And my buddy, Bill, our mutual friend, Bill Bourne, I have been doing some podcasts discussing Robert Jensen's theology and his little, the, the late Robert Jensen now, uh, of Blessed Memory. In his book, Theology and Outline, he talks about, he, he has this little, it's a short book, it's like 120 pages, and he has a great little section on Israel, which is just a summary of Israel's story. And he talks about, after talking about the call of Abraham, he says, and now we turn to Israel's other beginning, Moses and the Exodus. And so there, there is sort of like, it is, this is sort of like a second beginning in the Old Testament. You know, if Abraham is sort of, the, is one significant beginning of the story of redemption, there is, it is really a different kind of chapter and, and a chapter that, that takes on, you know, par, you know, this is of paradigmatic significance, right? The sort of death and resurrection through the, through this, through the Red Sea. Yeah. Go yeah. under the sea yeah. and coming and rising again. And also, I mean, Paul, 1 Corinthians 10, cites this as uh, the parallel to the spiritual experience of believers. They are baptized and they receive the spiritual food and spiritual drink, you know, 1 Corinthians 10. His point there, of course, is don't be like them in their unbelief, but it's certainly the case that this, you know, the Red Sea is baptism. The Red Sea is uh, connected directly to Christian experience in that way, and we're supposed to identify with the people that were in the wilderness as well as as Paul would say, our fathers, our fathers, you know, talking to Corinthians. <laughs> this is an identification of the church with, with Israel. Yeah, the other thing Jensen says, because he also he says how, you know, that there's this, this there's one great battle with the pursuing Egyptian troops in which the Israelites do not lift a finger. The Lord himself does all the work. So once again, we see that God is deeply involved in the vicissitudes and triumphs of his people. And Jensen later talks about in his little chapter in the Trinity, what a challenge this was in the, in the ancient Mediterranean world, because the God, uh, you know, like Aristotle's God, the, the God of the average learned reflective person, even if they hadn't read much philosophy, that if they were reflective in school, the kind of God they learned was not even Rodin's thinker, just pure thought. You know, there's not even embodiment. Right. And the way in this sort of chaotic world that you can find some peace and 
and you know things can make sense is is you just sort of imitate this pure act of thought and which which has no concern for embodied earthly right. existence. So, so this picture of what ultimate reality is, who ultimate reality is, is just so different. Yeah, it's it's like God is not really Yahweh is not really acting like the unmoved mover in this episode in in Exodus fourteen. You know, he says, "I will fight for you." And by the way, I think that's another key you know thematic thing, especially get into the prophets. They're always afraid of their enemies around them. And they have good reason to be at a human level. But the whole point is God can fight for you. And he does that. You know, in the middle of the book of Isaiah, the, in the in the narrative section of Isaiah, right between the two big sections, that's what happens. Uh, you know, Hezekiah goes to the temple, lays himself out, prays that God would would deliver them. God does deliver them against all the odds. Sennacherib, you know, he goes back and he's dead. You know, his 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 kids are dead. I think it's Sennacherib. But uh, the Assyrian king at the time, he goes back and one of his kids kills him. You know, he's at the height of his power and one of his sons kills him. And that just, you know, pulls away the Assyrian threat against Judah. It's amazing because God is always saying, I'll fight for you. You know, all those episodes, all those Bible stories always amount to that. You know, David and Goliath. What was going on there? How could this little kid take out this giant? Well, he did, you know, because God is, you know, uh, David says famously, I am going to do this to show you, that is Israel, that there's a God in Israel <laughs> to show you that the Lord, it's the battle belongs to the Lord. So the battle belongs to the Lord is just the key theme. And it starts here at the Exodus. Then The Lord doing battle for his people to his people doing battle with one another in Romans chapter 14. Mm, yes. Romans 14, very instructive passage. I think we need it now as much as they did in the first century because we have so many divisions within the church. I like to call it the gospel of raw milk. You know, I've known people that, and we've got some dairy farmers in our congregation. This is a joke to us, but there are people that it's so committed to some version of uh, uh, some health food version, some uh, whatever. Just all there's so many opportunities for division over non-essential things, and this is a great word for us. Basically, let live and let live. I think is kind of what he says. Yeah, you know, I've heard N.T. Wright. Uh, he did this course, I think, at Regent Romans in a week, and I, I listened to these tapes years ago. When, I did too. Yeah, when, I know that. When I, one listened to tapes, right? Like <laughs> these were CDs. When I I got CDs, so they were slightly improved, but they were uh, regular audio CDs, not MP3 CDs. <laughs> and he said, I think he actually did some of this with Gordon Fee, and he said that for him, one of the whole interpretive keys to the Book of Romans is in chapter fifteen, verse five through seven, where where. Paul says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for yes. the glory of God. Yep. And that so much of, of the book of Romans, so much of the theology that is so profound is pointed at such a practical end yeah. that in the capital of the world, that these people belonging to Jesus uh, with 
some Jewish of a Jewish origin, some not, uh, and and some having different scruples about certain things, that they would together bear witness to the power of Christ Jesus to make a new humanity. Right, and and it really is kind of a tough sell if you're trying to persuade someone here's the Messiah and he's making one new, new humanity. And by the way, we're just fighting like cats and dogs inside the church over stuff like what days to observe and what to eat and what not to eat. You know, it's kind of a hard sell to say, yes, savior of the world. Like, well, I'm not sure you're saving us from much. We already are like that. We can already fight with our Scythian neighbors and our, you know, barbarian people and so forth. We can already do that. That's not going to help us much. We need a salvation that brings us into shalom, unity, peace. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because Paul talks about different things, about food and calendar issues, and, and actually, you know, the people just bearing with one another, and that live and that live. Do you think that some of the reason why this is hard is less concern about the person's moral well-being or spiritual being, and more about anxiety and control? <laughs> well, I think so. I mean, I think culture is part of that um, controlling mechanism, right? So so you get into a culture, and it's, this is the way we do it. Um, I fan- some time ago we had I was in a church with uh, a lot of folks that were very much into uh, health food we'll just say and so they one of the parents and these were godly folks wonderful folks but they had a kid who was like seven or eight years old they went out to a restaurant one time and they looked over and they saw someone eating bread and they, they were eating just white bread just ordinary bread not not wheat bread. And so the kid looked up to his parent and said, are those people non-Christians? Because they, <laughs> they were eating white bread instead of wheat bread. Well, that's what that's what happens. I wanted to say something about Romans 14, though. I had a, a New Testament professor in seminary, uh, William Larkin, um, not to be confused with Clarence Larkin, the great dispensational guy. But William Larkin was a, a PCA minister. He died some years ago of cancer. But he was a great New Testament scholar, and he pointed out that if you read the book of Romans backwards, you can really see Paul's purpose. And if you read it backwards, you end up with that chapter 15, accept one another as God and Christ has accepted you. That's that's his entire you know mission point. All of this stuff about justification and sanctification and the, the relationship of the church, these are all get to be in one body, you know, live, live together, and don't let these things become a stumbling block for your unity. Leslie Newbegin said that's how he read the Church Dogmatics too. He started he started <laughs> backwards uh, with, the, with the last line. Maybe a lot of great books are that way. If you read the you know yeah, the end yeah. in, or at least read with the end in mind. I don't want you to tell me it's time to come home. I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me and let's, with the end in mind, go to our gospel reading. This is a great uh, parable, and it comes in an interesting series of texts here in Matthew 18. So we have we come to Matthew 18, 21 through 35. The week, the last Sunday's text was the was about confrontation in the church and when people sin against you. It's really interesting. The lectionary omits the the parable of the lost sheep. Yes. Immediately before that, <laughs> so it's, which it's is kind of the kind of sad because that sets it up because the whole purpose is reconciliation. That's what he's driving home through all of this stuff. Let me make a comment about the whole context. The ver- the very first verse is the disciples come to him and say, "Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom?" So the very first, you know, the, the very first verse in Math in Mark's version, it says they were they had a heated dispute. 
and they came to him and said, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And then he takes a child and says, unless you become to converted to the status of a child, I don't think he's speaking here of um, becoming like a child in the sense of all children are humble because they're not all humble, but the status is they have no status in that society. So unless you have this no status, I'm not important mentality, you can't even enter the kingdom of God. And then he continues with, you know, stumbling block and then the parable of the lost sheep, which is the whole purpose is go after the the lost sheep. And that's that sets up the whole discussion of the Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you. And then after that, you have the whole question of Peter, right? Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times. Yeah, and it's funny because Robert Capon thinks that Jesus is sort of doing a big setup here. That uh, that basically he thinks that the that the stuff on confrontation is kind of uh, in contrast. He thinks he's being ironic, uh, and then so after he tells this sort of prodigal sort of son sort of story with the sheep. Then he says, well, if they if they screw up three times, then they're out and <laughs> treat him like a Gentile and tax collector, which what does Jesus get harassed for? Immediately before a, a few verses before this, he admires the faith of a Gentile woman. You know, he's got tax collectors following him. So it's sort of like, well, if 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 after the third try, treat him like one of the people I'm showing grace to. <laughs> and then he thinks Peter's kind of being pragmatic. OK, well, all right. I mean, that sounds a little harsh three times. What about seven times? <laughs> And then Jesus kind of, it's like a gambit in chess. No, I'm telling you, 70 times seven. Mm. And then he tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. What's so striking about the parable, and we, we I think most people know the parable of, of how this person was uh, had a tremendous debt. By the way, if you compare the numbers, I did this a few years ago, but um, he owed him 10,000 talents. That's what the servant owed, 10,000 talents. Well, that uh, in uh, in terms of what does that mean? Well, we know that at one point, the entire region of Judea, the taxes collected for one year was something like 600 talents. Okay. So just imagine that. So now we're talking about 10,000 talents. So this is, this is a number that is not even calculable for any individual to owe. No one could owe that, right? That is, it couldn't, couldn't be, this is a, so I saying, yeah, there was this, uh, this, uh, this, this servant in a household and somehow he ran up a, a bill of $10 billion to the, to the owner of the house. Well, okay. That's a pretty overstated kind of example. Uh, it's hard to, hard to run up a bill of $10 billion. You know, that's going to be, what are you going to, what are you going to do to get $10 billion? So it's this outrageous number. Um, but then, you know, the, the other side, you go, you go bankrupt with a lot of hotels. Yeah. <laughs> well, right. You, 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 who can do this? Right. That's, that's the idea. But then, you know, the, the comparison is a hundred denarii that the other, the slave that the slave holds, the guy that had this $10 billion worth of debt is owed a hundred days wages, which is, you know, enough. Like if somebody, you know, if, if it's okay, uh, let me give you th- three or four months, you know, uh, somebody borrowed from me three or four months paycheck. Well, that's, that's, that'd be substantial money for me. It would hurt. You know, it's not like there was nothing there. It would hurt a little bit, but it's still in comparison ludicrous, right? It's a ludicrous comparison. And yet he can't find it in himself to forgive that. Even though this debt that's insurmountable could never, ever be paid in a million lifetimes, 
is totally forgiven. He can't forgive the relative small amount. Uh, again, I start. I, I think the the numbers are very interesting because a hundred denarii would be an important sum of money to to any, just about anybody in the first century world, especially among the poor. But it wouldn't be so much that you know you couldn't deal with it. But ten thousand talents is not even attainable. You know, you can't even get there. They, they, the Romans couldn't even, couldn't even get a thousand talents out of the whole region, which includes the temple and everything else, you know, so <laughs> for a year. So this is a, you know, this is again, a striking comparison. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, Robert Capon, who's book I've been reading pretty closely going through these parables, he says, he said a really interesting insight here. He says, the king responds to nothing that the servant has in mind. He ignores the manifest nonsense about repayment. He makes no calculations at all about profit and loss. Instead, he simply drops dead to the whole business of bookkeeping and forgives the servant, wipes the debt out, forgets it ever existed, does in short what the servant couldn't even conceive of doing. And do you know why the king could do that and the servant couldn't? Because the king was willing to end his old life of bookkeeping keeping and the servant wasn't. Mm. Indeed, the servant was so busy trying to hold together his own bookkeeper's existence, so unable to imagine anything even vaguely like dropping dead to it, that he never even saw what the king had done. All he knew was that the heat, which formerly had been on, was now off. He had the slightest notion of what it had cost the king to put out the fire. Mm. And he actually then says that, you know, uh, kind of comparing this to our to our own situation. Uh, he says, he talks about that basically, uh, where is this man? What he tells us in this parable, therefore, is that unless we too are willing to see our own death as the one thing necessary to our salvation, unless we can, unlike the unforgiving servant, die to the to the gimcrack accounts by which we have justified our lives. We will never be able, able to enjoy the resurrection, even though Jesus hands it to us on a silver platter. Mm. If we cannot face the price he has paid to free us, we might as well never have been freed at all. Yeah, that's a good word. It's a good word. I'm reminded, uh, too, there's an alternate reading. Um, there's a couple of tracks, of course, during this time of the calendar year for the for the lectionary. And one of the alternate Psalms is Psalm 103. And Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget his benefits. And notice this, verse 3, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who forgives all your iniquity. This is really lined up with this theme that God forgives. The other thing I would want to make sure to emphasize, because this comes through, uh, especially in Matthew, you know, the verse after the Lord's Prayer, so we say, you know, kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen, depending on your textual reading there. But the next verse is for, (laughs) you know, the next verse starts with the word for, uh, Greek gar, you know. For if you do not forgive men their sins against you, neither will the Heavenly Father forgive you. That's the verse after the Lord's Prayer. Of course, it's in the Lord's Prayer too, right? Forgive us our trespasses or our debts, um, probably debts better. And so here we have the conclusion of this very text. So my Heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now, that's a, it's a striking uh, way to conclude this parable, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and I think that, that it's interesting. Capon says at the end of that chapter, he says, there is only one unpardonable sin, and that is to withhold pardon from others. The only thing that can keep us out of the joy of resurrection is to join the unforgiving servant in his refusal to die. Mm. And I think the reason we, that we do do that, like you're saying, is that we, we 
we refuse to die, you know, to, cause you know, when, when we, it's sort of like clinging to a wretched form of life, uh, like, yeah. like a zombie kind of existence. When we, when we, re, we sort of uh, apply the law, uh, sort of horizontally <laughs> to other people when we've received the gospel vertically from the Lord. Yes. Well, and, and I, I said this in my sermon, um, this past uh, week, which I preached on the previous passage of Matthew eighteen fifteen and following, but, uh, I was privileged to hear a, a researcher on forgiveness. His name is C. Everett Worthington. He's widely available online, C. Everett Worthington. And he's one of the world's most foremost researchers on forgiveness. And he's done, he's a psychologist. He's done a lot of clinical work on it. He's done a lot of um, statistical work to, to decide, to, di- to discover and to figure out what, what helps people get peace in terms of the process of forgiveness. And he actually has some manuals online that you can just download for free that you can work through for forgiveness. And he says that it's it's very clear the research is in that if you work through a process for forgiveness, you know, despite the atrocity that was done to you, that if you work through a process and oftentimes with other people, you can get peace through forgiveness. And he has the the data to back that up, if you will. Um, again, you can check him out online, see Everett Worthington. Um, and it's very fascinating that, you know, we just need sometimes time and process and other people around us to just keep pointing us in the right direction. And as we work through things, then forgiveness and peace can come. And I would like to offer that hope just to people to say, you know, don't live in your bitterness. Don't live in your resentments. Uh, seek to be freed from that. Yeah. In grace and forgiveness, there is true freedom. Yes. Hey, thanks, Greg. Thanks for doing this. Yes. Okay, brother. Take care. God bless, my friend. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks again to my guest, Jason Michelle. You can follow Jason's exploits at tamecynic.org. And check out his podcast, Crackers and Grape Juice. Thanks to Greg Strawbridge for being my guest today. And thanks again to you all for listening. Until next time, fare thee well.